Hello there, podcast listener. Amber Noel here. It's my turn to be a listener now. I would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. The Living Church, as you might know, is a nonprofit communications ministry with a heart for Christian unity, especially in the Anglican Communion. And we want to keep our mission sharp in all we do, including the podcast, and have fun, obviously. But would you write to me and let me know how we're doing? What's the podcast doing for you? Is it making a difference in your thinking, your ministry, your prayer life, your daily walk with your golden doodle? Do you have some hot takes on what we could do better? I want to hear it all. I might even read your comments on the next episode. There are so many great podcasts out there. I want to do more of what The Living Church is here to do and less of what it's not. So there are two things you can do to help. First, make sure you're following us from a podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Find us on the page and click follow. The second thing you can do is email me, ambernoel at livingchurch.org. Share with me a thing or two you've gotten from the podcast over the years. And if you want, include something we might do better. Help us stay not just a great podcast, but on mission. Follow us, email me, A-M-B-E-R-N-O-E-L at livingchurch.org. I can't wait to hear from you. The Living Church, Catholic, Evangelical, Ecumenical. Welcome to the Living Church Podcast. I'm your host, Amber Noel. I sat down a few days ago with Abigail Woolleycutter. You heard from her in the last episode. She's a PhD candidate in ethics at Southern Methodist University. She's a writer, she's a new mom, and an all-around awesome person. And she wanted to unpack an article I wrote for TLC a couple of weeks ago about working from home as a kind of monastic practice. Now, before you listen, keep in mind that we are talking here as people who are able to keep working and doing things we love while staying at home. Many do not currently have that choice. So let's keep those neighbors in our prayers and stay aware of what we can do so that they can be protected during this time. And look, if your biggest problem on a given workday is a little cabin fever, I say, make the most of it. Abigail Woolley Cutter, and I am here with Amber Noel, who is a graduate of Duke Divinity School, and she has had many professional roles, including a Living Church Institute fellowship at Virginia Theological Seminary as a playwright in residence. A lot of these roles have included uh, working from home, in particular writing, and so she has devoted some thought to what works and what doesn't work in working from home. So, Amber, thanks so much for making time to speak with me this morning. Yes, you're welcome. Uh, first of all, if you could tell us about your experience working from home. I know you have told some stories about uh, what it was like in New York, what it was like at Virginia Theological Seminary. Well, I've always been kind of a homebody, and um, that doesn't mean that I am Emily Dickinson. It's not to that level, but I've always enjoyed working from home. 
and have been able to be pretty productive from home for the most part. However, I've done the best when I've had a companion. So in my young adult life, that usually meant a roommate, someone coming in and out, if not someone who's there with me working from home for a portion of the day as well, at least someone who comes home in the evening at some point and we say, hey, how was your day? You know, we had some dinner together as, a, as an anchor point. But then in my later adulthood, which I guess is still technically young adulthood, approaching mid-adulthood, anyway, whatever you want to call it, I found myself living alone. Um, I had gone from a full-time job uh, at a church where I had an office to freelancing. And um, I didn't have the money at the time to rent out a cool space. A lot of my other friends who were freelancers that I was talking to, they were saying, oh, you know, rent a workshare space, get somewhere where you can be with people. And it's only $500 a month, but you get free coffee and tea. $500 a month is a bit of an exaggeration, but um, it, it just wasn't something that was in my budget. Also getting, going to a coffee shop every day and getting a cup of coffee, that also adds up. And then the noise, the ambient noise of some place like a coffee shop or a bar, um, even a library can feel like it's full of distractions. So anyway, I found myself at home living alone and I found myself faced with myself for the entire workday. And then coming home meant just putting my computer away and then being home again, unless I had plans that evening to go out. So I started having some major cabin fever, um, and that's when I realized I need to find some ways to systematize how I think about my time, or I'm going to go nuts. Yeah. You mentioned, you, you call it a, a rule of life. Why, you say you don't have an official rule of life, um, but uh, what are the similarities and differences between an official sort of monastic rule of life and, and what you do? Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is discipline. <laughs> what I mean by that is if you have an official rule of life, for example, if you're a, someone who's a consecrated a monk or a nun or someone who's even a consecrated layperson uh, and you have a rule of life, your rule of life is accountable to the church. Um, and it's something that's inherited rather than something that you make up yourself and then other people that I know don't have a rule of life that they then submit to the church in a formal way, but they've decided to create their own rules of life. They might even create something like a family contract where they sit down and they put in writing year by year, and they modify their rule of life year by year. How will we balance our time between taking care of ourselves spiritually and eating well and getting exercise and spending quality time with friends and family. And that's amazing to me. I, I love that they do that. I find that overwhelming. My rule of life, I, I would say rules of life, little r, little l, are methods. It's not consecrated in any way. I haven't made a list and then like presented it to the Lord in prayer and said, here's my list of things. Help me to, to always do this. It's sort of informed stopgap measures based on wisdom that you say, for this time, I think this seems good to apply these things to myself. But they're not terribly strict. And certainly, this is the first time I've ever really shared them in any kind of systematic way with anyone else. 
but it's good ideas and it's what you find work. Yes. And I love that you are being really realistic about it. You mentioned that there are costs involved in a lot of the tricks that some people use, paying to go to Starbucks, paying to rent a workspace. And the reality is at this particular moment in which we're writing, leaving home is not an option for a lot of people around the country, um, including those of us in Dallas. So, um, so even people who are accustomed to working from home might not be accustomed to working from home as literally as they will be in the near future. So what can we do to make this a better experience? It's partly a lot of the things I wrote a little essay about it. That's also published on the, on the TLC site. And a lot of, of what I wrote there have to do with upping your, upping your mental game. And I'm not the kind of person who is going to tell you to crush tasks or <laughs> obliterate your laziness or I'm, I, you know, harshness is not always, is not always the right way to go about it. But in terms of, and it's not always mind over matter because matter matters, but there are, there are some ways that you can think about your own home. If you have to be home, then you need to think about your home, not as a place that you're trapped. Now, I understand there are some people who, for whom that's actually the case. They are with a companion or a spouse or even a roommate who is um, anywhere from irascible or emotionally manipulative to just abusive. So I, I realize there are some situations in which people are actually trapped and we need to pray for those folks um, to find solutions. But for most of us, Um, To keep those four walls from feeling like they're closing in or those 38 walls, however big your house is, it's really not the size of the space that's going to make the difference. And that's what I learned having lived in an apartment where I was working from home, living in a large house, but with my parents and my grandparents and working from home most of the time and then living in a probably 200 square foot room in Manhattan in winter where there's you know, it's, it's cold and it's rainy and, and you're not going to be going outside a lot anyway. New York is where I started thinking about it like a cloister. So how would someone who is actually officially consecrated um, to a rule of life, how are they thinking about their space? Well, one thing is they're thinking about their space as enough. Whatever it is that's provided to them day by day is enough. And they make a discipline of that. Maybe in Benedictine terms, that's part of the discipline of poverty and also part, actually, and it's part of the discipline of obedience and part of the discipline of chastity. Chastity isn't, of course, just about sexuality. It's about the words that you allow to come out of your mouth. It's about observing and um, using self-control over your own emotions. And it's about attitudes toward what you have. And so when, when approaching a day where you can't leave your house, starting the day with prayer and also ending the day with prayer, even if it's very short, allowing some, some quiet into as, as much as you can into just a slim moment of prayer can make a huge difference. And then not letting yourself uh, act like you're on vacation even though, and this will apply really well to students uh, who have to be home right now, um, even though you are 
in a house that you're not normally in unless you're resting or unless you're having fun, you know, during your leisure hours, you're at home typically. Um, these aren't your leisure hours. And so prepare yourself for the day as if you're going to work outside the house, which you, you know, you are going to work. So you've got to form new associations, it sounds like. People might associate a certain space with a certain way of being, but you're suggesting creating new associations there. Yes, exactly. And then another example is, um, so you're sitting at your desk, you've worked for a few hours at your desk, and you're like, oh, I'm not really, you know, I'm feeling kind of twitchy, I need to get a new, I need to get a new place to sit. And so you stake out the couch. This looks like a place where you might be able to be productive. Um, don't lay down to work on your couch or your recliner. Don't recline back in your recliner unless this is like the very end of the day and you're, and you're doing those last tasks that don't require, you know, a lot of vigilance. I mean, if it's 11 o'clock in the morning, you need to be up. You, you need to be on your game. Your cat may be snuggling with you. You may have you may be within arm's reach of another cup of tea or um, the television remote or a, a bookshelf full of really great books, but you're not going to really, you're not going to focus on those things right now. You can focus on those things when you are done with your day's work. But if, if you're, you're up and you're on your game, if you're wearing clothes that signal, Hey, I'm here to do my job. Um, kids, yes, mom is you know, like, mom is here. Like mom might be wearing a sweatsuit, but like mom is wearing lipstick or you can see in mom's eyes that she's ready for business and we're going to clean the house today or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, signaling to yourself and to other people that this is, this is a time to work and this is a time to be awake. Uh, and disciplining yourself to do that has been really important for me. And it sounds like it can be really small things too. The difference in posture, the difference in dressing, the difference in uh, just where you sit. So that's really good to hear. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And as human beings, we have agency and we have a power of agency that is God-given and it is flexible, um, but it's so profound and in some ways so unrealized um, in us, it can be, that um, the psalmist says, ye are gods. I mean, there's that mysterious little passage that says, you are gods, that's had so, many commenta uh, so much commentary on it over the years, over the centuries. And I think part of what that's referring to is, is part of the sense in which we're, we're made in the image of the Lord who has creative power and capacity and passes actual agency to us to change, to work differences in our environments. And to, um, as a friend of mine who, who taught a Sunday school class yesterday um, on, on justice and the book of Micah, we are every day building little worlds um, in our homes, as well as on a larger scale. Everything we do participates in um, building environments in which ourselves and our neighbors are living in. Uh, and so the small things, in that sense, the small things do matter. You're encouraging, encouraging yourself to not be able to be grateful, um, even 
um, in times where things are so restricted rather than to say things are restricted right now. There are certain things that I can control, including myself. There's a certain agency that I have over my environment, over my own mind, over my own bodily habits, over my attitudes. And I think that, that is, that's totally congruent with the, the kinds of things that St. Paul deals with in the epistles, for example. Um, he talks about everything from don't commit adultery to, well, you can eat meat in these circumstances, but maybe think about not eating this kind of meat in these circumstances. So the nitty gritty uh, certainly is contributing to or taking away from building a life of holiness. No, that's really good to hear. I, I love the the, the building little worlds image and little is okay. Mm -hmm. So yeah. what about, what about taking breaks? Does that, um, does that make you feel lazy? Does it help? What, what does that do? It, it, it really is going to depend on the person. Some people can sit down and just slam out four or five hours of work. And they're, they're like, they're like machines. I mean, I don't, I don't know how they do it. Some people really can get in the zone. They can sit in one place and boom, they can, get, they can get the job done. Now, the question for me is when they're in that zone, are they able to stop when they need to stop? Um, and that's going to be up to them to figure out. Um, I'm someone who is more prone not to not be able to stop, but someone who's more prone to distraction and having to work myself up into getting into the zone. But one thing that can help, and again, this is, a, this is a mental thing, is to look at my day and to sit down, putting down an idea of what needs to happen in the day, so basically a to-do list, and then putting in little places where I know that I'm probably going to need a break. So a mid-morning break is good, a lunch break, one to two short mid-afternoon breaks, like. Um, 10 to 20 minutes. One of those breaks can be a nap. Um, and I do want to emphasize that if you, especially during times that are stressful, times that are disorganized and discombobulated, and you're just trying to find a new balance and a new way of being, you may feel super tired. And if you need a nap, one of the greatest pieces of advice my grandmother ever gave me was the cat nap, which is 20 minutes. You set your alarm for 20 minutes, you lay down someplace comfy and relatively quiet, and you tell yourself, um, in 20 minutes, I'll be up and at work again, so I'm not going to feel bad about taking this 20 minutes to lay down. Ah, and it's the, mm -hmm. it's the discipline of saying, this is the amount of time I'm going to give to this, to the work, and the, the break gives you something to look forward to. And then limiting the break makes you not have the, the problem of guilt that comes back. So, so you're going to be able to get back to work after, after you take the break. Yeah, that's exactly it. And it's, it can be easy to be lazy working from home. It can be really easy to overwork. And I want to add that sometimes overwork results from not getting enough done in your allotted period of time. Sometimes the work you have to do stretches out to fill the time that you have. So having slots of time where you say half hour of email task, half hour of email snack break, every other thing that I do is, is a half hour of email. So hopefully by the end of the day, and I don't, you know, you don't always stick to it because things come up, but hopefully by the end of the day, you've said, okay, I haven't gone through my whole email box. 
but heck, it's six o'clock. I need to eat dinner. I need to take a walk. I need to spend time with people. I need to call my grandma, whatever it may be. I need to close this computer because I've done my due diligence and enough is enough. Yeah. You set limits for yourself. And it seems to be more likely that the time that you spend working will be more productive when you know that it's going to end at a certain point. Yeah. Yeah. And then even when you haven't been productive, uh, you end at a certain point. Uh, ending at a certain point anyway is helpful. There are times where you can't do that because it's just one of those days you have something extra to do. Um, but it helps one of those days not become most of, not become most of your days. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you know, I bet that if you waste some time and this is, you know, early in the process and you, you procrastinate and then you get to the time you said you were going to stop. I, I imagine if you make yourself stop at that point and you realize you've wasted a day or, or your morning, you're going to be less likely to waste it the next day. <laughs> you know, it forces it, right? I mean, almost like I, I heard someone say, treat yourself like a gifted child. You know, we sometimes have to parent ourselves wisely too. And, and I wonder if, um, enforcing some of these rules on ourselves <laughs> has the same effect as it might on, uh, on a child. Okay. Well, sorry. This was your time. Better luck next time. <laughs> Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Now, how do you feel about how you spent your time today, Amber? This is not something that I put in my essay, and, and uh, that was kind of a joke, what I just said, but not really, because another thing that I've learned to do is being, having, having your routine messed up, living in a stressful time, having to work from home, being alone, all of these things um, can challenge your emotional maturity if I am just hitting a wall or I'm just, in t if I'm just internally saying no to a task and I, and I know I have to do it, just as an example, I ask myself, okay, if I had a friend who was coming to me or calling me right now and, and complaining about the same thing, what would I tell them? And I think of what I would tell them and then I say that to myself, either mentally or aloud. And if I would, if I would tell myself, you know what, that's, that's probably not a good idea. Or I think you're being dramatic or when's the last time you ate or have you only had carbs today? Um, and you're just basically falling asleep in your chair. I mean, so treating yourself like a good friend who you can, you can speak kindly to, but uh, you can also say, girl, pull yourself together. That is a, is a good discipline. Right. That makes sense. I think sometimes it can be easier to look at somebody else and assess the situation or ask the appropriate questions to help somebody get to, um, to, to accomplish what they need to do or to, to resolve any troubling feelings. But, but looking at yourself and imagining that you're somebody else can be really uh, a way to treat yourself with wisdom and compassion. I like that. Mm -hmm. So you've talked about apportioning the times of your day. What about the days itself? In particular, as the, a lot of people who might be accustomed to working from home separate the days from the evenings or the, the weekdays from the weekend by going out when they're no longer working. What can you do to um, not forget what day it is? One thing you could do is um, have certain days where you call certain people for a 10-minute, 15-minute check-in. So let's say Monday 
Wednesday, Friday, or Tuesday, Thursday are my catch up with this friend or that friend or this relative or that relative days. And in fact, thinking of Monday, Wednesday, Friday functioning differently from Tuesday, Thursdays have also been helpful to me. Monday, Wednesday, Fridays are for certain things. They may have a certain rhythm. And then Tuesday, Thursdays are for certain other things. I have friends who only do television on alternate days. Oh, Tuesday, Thursday are TV or movie nights where we allow ourselves to relax doing that. But Monday and Wednesday are reading nights. And Friday night, we have a nice long dinner or we have dinner with friends. And that's what they do. The way that you handle lighting in your house, why keep all of the bright glaring lights on in the same way all day long? I mean, we have circadian rhythms that are really important. And if you're not used to exploring those, um, and you're, you're a creature of habit who, you know, you never really open your blinds, uh, you just keep your blinds closed and try using natural light and some of the rhythms of natural light to, to help you signal to your body, the day is closing. You've also talked about making your bed, which I hear so often as good advice, but then what, um, what was new there was giving yourself a day off of even making your bed as Mm -hmm. another one of these little ways of distinguishing one day from another. Yeah. That, um, making, not making the bed on Sunday, uh, is, um, over the years as I've learned more, um, about Sabbath and, and resting and how seriously God takes it and you don't take it because you've earned it or deserved it during the week. It's Mm. not like, Oh, I've worked hard enough that now, Oh, I really feel good about taking Sabbath. And that happens. I mean, if you're emotionally honest, there are some weeks you feel better about taking a break than others because you're like, oh, I deserved it this week, or I'm tired enough to feel that I need it. Um, But whether you've deserved it or whether you've shirked, a a rhythm of Sabbath is taking a time that you set apart to say, my attempt to do well, my attempt to work, my attempt to have a certain kind of agency or a certain kind of control over my environment stops here because human life, and it's, it's an acknowledgement of the reality that God is sovereign. It's a, it's a re-acknowledgement or setting aside time to really soak in the fact that God is good um, as well as sovereign. Um, and that God is a providing, attentive father, and to worship him. But it's also a way of acknowledging the extreme contingency in which we live, and the extreme lack of control that we have over almost anything. The Really, the only kind of control that the Bible specifically talks about is self-control when it comes to, to human beings controlling ourselves. And we can even barely do that because we ourselves are such mysterious and unruly creatures with unruly desires. So on Sunday, when I don't make my bed and I leave it a mess, that's partly because God is good. I want to remind myself God's good and the Lord has promised to return and to make all things well. But it's also a reminder that um, things are a mess and that's an understatement that there are so many things that are not good in the world that I can't fix. But then of course, making the bed is a sign that I'm going to put my oar in and I'm committed to putting my oar in with 
the, the things that only God can start and only God can finish, I am conjoined uh, to put my oar in with, with that. Um, and that's my responsibility. But on Sunday or whatever day is Sabbath is just a reminder <laughs> that we're small uh, and we have to take a break from, from controlling our environment sometimes and from working and toiling. Yeah, that's really wise. And a lot of the things we've talked about have to do with um, being content with a smaller scale of our lives when we are limited to being at home um, and uh, take interest in the small things, the differences in light, the differences in space, the difference in posture, the difference in what you wear, all these small things. Um, it's so interesting to be facing a, a global crisis and the right thing to do is often not rise to greatness, but, uh, but lift up the small things in this case. So, um, it's, been uh wonderful hearing about um the, the the techniques that you've developed over the years i just want to add one more brief thought that you that has to do with the small things um there can sometimes be a confusion you know if you say don't despise the day of small things people there can be a sense that you're asking people to retreat from for example uh paying attention to issues of injustice or systemic injustice to say, well, you know what, let's just concentrate on the small things and say our little prayers and live in our little homes and be nice uh, to each other and make our beds and God will fix the rest. And that's not exactly, that's not exactly what I'm saying. What I'm suggesting is more that, I don't know if you've ever had a day where you've read a book. You were probably eight or nine years old the last time you had the attention span to read a book for this long before the, before the internet came along. But you're reading a book and you're reading it for so many hours that you can watch the light change in the room. You're watching the sun move and you're just staying in one place and you're just watching the sun move from one side of the room to the other. And then maybe at a certain point, this catches your attention, the movement of the light and you stop reading or you've just read a part that really moves you and you take a break and you can hear there's a bird outside and you're just stricken by, there's something about the silence, something about the movement of the light and the gracefulness, the grace in that moment of being alive. And that's just one example of the ways that slowing down, attentiveness to something small, and resting from the frenzy, that being free to do anything we want and go anywhere we want can sometimes really encourage. But the way that being in a small moment or in a single room and not being able to leave this room or in your house and not being able to leave the house can actually open up a way of being attentive to what God has provided, the wonder with which God has infused every gift that he gives to us, including creation. And what that does is that, in, that encourages at its best such a love a radical love and appreciation and wonder and awe and disposition to worship so that anything in this world that disrupts, that goes against, that tries to destroy, that despises what God has made and the love that he's poured into everything that he's made 
and, and his intentions for his creation, his good intentions, that it makes you angry, <laughs> that you get mad, that, that you, you become someone who is radicalized for the, for the kingdom, you know, especially if you know this in terms of the lordship of Jesus Christ. So I, I find that, it, that attentiveness to the small things is not like pulling yourself in and becoming more and more introverted and just becoming satisfied with that. It's not abdicating responsibility. No, absolutely not. So yeah. that when things are wrong, when things are unjust, uh, when, when a system, a systemic problem is harming your neighbor or harming you, you stand up and you say, this is not acceptable because this isn't congruent with the, the love and the gentleness and, and the power <laughs> with, with which God has infused everything that, that he's done. So you can recognize more what is not God's work versus what is. Hmm. So love for the whole world, the outside world is tied deeply to, to love for the, the things that are immediately present as well. You're, you're building both of them at the same time. Yeah, completely, completely. And I think I quoted this in my essay, but I isn't, I mean, Jesus, the parables of Jesus just give a very strong impression that the steward who can't be trusted with little cannot be trusted with much. And I think that's important to remember during mm. this time. Yeah. So at this moment, some of us are, are called to train on, on caring for the small things um, when we feel pretty helpless for, for a lot of the large things. And yet, and yet, <laughs> here we are caring and thinking and praying about the large things as well. Yep, absolutely. Thinking of it as a training ground is perfect. That's just the thing. Well, what a gift to have this conversation with you, Amber. And I wish you blessing in your work at home and um, pray for me and my work from home and all of our listeners. We hope that this gives courage and encouragement in unprecedented times. So thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks, Abigail. Thanks for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. Look for more episodes coming soon on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you use to get your podcasts these days. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, our website, livingchurch.org, or on our award-winning covenant blog, livingchurch.org forward slash covenant. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can find a link in the show notes that will allow you to give so we can continue to make these episodes. I'm Amber Noel, your host, and I've been glad to be with you. Peace.